So I see that two of your computers are not showing the thing. I don't know what's up. You'll have to look at your neighbors. I tried a couple things and none of them worked. So if you want to move, you can move. Or not, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> so juniors, raise your hands. Okay, and seniors? So we are on the last day of the others. We're on the last day of the others. And this is one of those lessons, like I hope I can do it justice, because it's one of those really important things that, that you should know, that you should be aware of. Uh, it is more lecture than interactive, like most lessons are super interactive in here. Um, and I like it that way, but this particular one is more kind of luxury because it's kind of, this is what happened. Um, don't worry though, because tomorrow we start into like death rituals and things. You will mostly not be creeped out. Um, mostly. There are days. There are days. And then of course, what's next week? your presentations. Here's, let me just help you with two things that are tempting. One, it is super tempting to be like, oh, you know, I did my presentation, so I'm done. I don't have to come anymore. But you'll notice that part of your grade is being here for other people's presentations. That's a university thing, and it's pretty normal. Like, expect suffering if you... But I don't want you to come if you're sick and dying. Like, so there is a makeup assignment that I tried to find a good balance between sucking bad enough that it wasn't tempting to just skip and being reasonable in case you're actually sick. Did I ever tell you about my experience being sick at college one day? I had this class. It was a history of terrorism class. It was super good. Um, they brought in a specialist on terrorism to do it, but it was one week long, but it was every day from like eight to four, all day, and you couldn't miss a single day. If you miss a day, you just failed the class. So I got the flu, like the honest to goodness flu. So I came, and usually I sit in the front because I like to sit like this, you know, with my legs all stretched out and stuff. The front's better. Some of you are nodding. like. People think you're kissing up, or but the, the presenters always ignore you when you're in the front. They like they don't even see you, so it's a good place to hide, and you get more leg room, so it's beautiful. Anyway, so I sat in the back, and I picked up the garbage can, and I put it right next to me, and I had this bottle of like anti-nausea medicine, and I drank the whole thing, and I was so sick, and I was just like, ah. Oh. So, don't come if you're going to throw up. Stay home. I don't want you to suffer. But if you're a senior and you're like, I'm done, then you need to come. So, sound good? That's why that's, why that's there. Um, I'll point out, too, I do not have a plan for you to make it up if you miss the day you're presenting. So check your calendar, check your schedule, make sure that you're, that you're set and that you're ready to, to be here. Um, 
if your parents come in and they're like, oh, well, I think it's okay if you stay home. I did have someone do that once. They just decided to stay home for fun. He lied to his dad and said nothing was going on at school that day, and he skipped his presentation, and it dropped him honestly from like a C to an F. And so don't do that. Like, just be smart. You're a smart class, so do good. Okay, good. I know that, you, I, like, I'm looking at your faces, and none of you would do that anyway. But it just makes me feel better to say it. Does that make sense? Thanks for humoring me. I don't know, that look you two just gave each other, like, hmm, how can we make Crawford panic by skipping our presentation? I will tell you this too, the presentations tend to be really good. Like they tend to be re really memorable and really well done. So let's talk while I have your attention for just a second about the expectations with that. So you've been in my class for a while and you know, like of course there are days that I plan better than others. Just I try to do my best but sometimes life gets in the way and whatever and sometimes I think it's awesome and it's not as awesome as it is but there's never been a day that you came that I wasn't ready that I didn't have something for you and I didn't think it was useful and constructive I want you to be ready to present so just a couple guidelines first spend as much time thinking about how you're going to say what you're going to say as you do planning what you're going to say. Practice it, go through it. I mean, think about it like half of you or maybe three-fourths of you are musicians of some kind or athletes of some kind. You don't like get your music and you're like, oh, this is what I'm going to sing. And then you set it aside and ignore it until the day of the concert. That's not the way you do it. And public speaking should be the same. You should run through it a few times. You should be familiar with it. What am I going to say here? What lame dad joke am I going to tell here? You know, what? Does, it, does that make sense? Like, like you really want to run through it. How am I going to present this? How is it going to be a, a thing? Uh, otherwise, what happens is you just read it. And if you're reading stupid tiny cue cards or you're reading your PowerPoint, either one is bad. Second, don't read a PowerPoint ever in your whole life don't read a PowerPoint if you become a teacher and you read a PowerPoint just don't do that okay it's terrible because your audience can read ahead and then they're done and then they ignore you because that's what PowerPoints are for when you have them on there. You notice mine are almost all just pictures, maybe a few words to remind me of what's going on. Do the same if you have a presentation. Like, but look through the rubric and check. One of the points is worth, or a few of the, one of the sections, one of the categories is like, is your presentation somehow clever? Is, is it innovative? Is it interesting? Is it, so do some things to make it interesting. I'll give you some guidelines just because you don't have any experience with it. You can ask a question of the audience, but if you do, especially this audience, that's the end of your presentation. You will never get it back 
because asking a question and getting an answer takes five to six minutes. It doesn't seem like it, but it does. So uh, a better way to get some participation if you want is like ask them and have them raise their hands. So give them, give them multiple choices or just say, I just want one person to respond or, um, or just don't do that. Videos always take a little bit of time or music to, to play, no matter how well we do it ahead of time, how ready we are. It just takes a minute to get it to get it going to transition. Now I've told you about the rules for videos and things, right? Okay. Clarify, come in early in practice. You can't show any clip of anything rated R or TVMA. I have an aversion to getting fired. And that would get me fired. So that's not like and I don't want to embarrass you, but I will shut you down right then. And again, this is one of those things that I'm going to tell you just because I feel better telling you, but I don't think this audience needs it. Don't make fun of the people you're talking about. That's not, you're supposed to be a good folklorist. And a good folklorist isn't like, look at these idiots. The only exception I'll make, I had one group do the Ku Klux Klan last trimester kind of allow that one. <laughs> okay, questions on that? Last thing, you will do better if you plan ahead and you have a little bit of fun with it. Everyone's nervous about public speaking, but you are with a very friendly audience in this room. There's not a single person here who's gonna wish for your failure. I think, I don't know. Some of you laughed like, well. <laughs> They're not gonna wish for your failure, maybe their friend's failure. Right, no, no, one's gonna, no one's gonna judge. If you are nervous getting up in front of the group, consider maybe making a movie or doing something that, that's just a little simpler. Um, again, I've had people sing songs. I've had people make videos. I've had people, um, I said that I'd never had an interpretive dance, so someone did an interpretive dance. One person was like dancing, and the other person was like, see how the, and it was really hilarious, and it worked really well. I've had a lot of people show short clips, like 30-second clips of primary documents. I have had people bring food. It is not required, and if you bring food, go last. Um, we can't have food in, in the lab, right? We gotta take it out, and that takes so much time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'll give you some time today, and I'll give you some time. I, I will give you time almost every day this week, and then Monday, that's the only thing we're doing. Unless, no one signed up Monday, correct? Okay, because I did that on purpose. <laughs> so yeah, you'll have a full day plus extra time these other days. So it shouldn't be, if you're absent, please communicate with your group. And please 
give each other phone numbers or if you actually check email, email works, but communicate in a way that you'll communicate. Okay, you ready for the lesson? Let's do the lesson then. Again, I'm hoping I can do this justice. Uh, and it's one, it's a rather expansive subject. Just have to make sure it's work. Don't do that. Okay, technological problems. Sorry while I yell at my computer. We're going to look at two of the humanities that we've used. We're going to do um, folklore and we're going to do anthropology. We're not doing American studies because it grew out of the others and because it's a more recent discipline. So we're going to look at those two and we're going to look at how they kind of viewed others and how they perpetuated some problems. So we're going to start with anthropology, this famous anthropologist talking to some indigenous people. So anthropology started as a colonial discipline. Discipline meaning field of study. So what, what they did is they felt like it was their job to explain why Europeans were awesome and the rest of the world sucked. Now, of course, the rest of the world didn't really suck, but Europe was able to take over much of the rest of the world, mostly because of the plague. You learned about this in world history, right? Europe was a, a disgusting backwater, and so they got the plague, and most of them died, and that made them really strong, and they used that power to take over the world. Gits. Uh, so they... <laughs> yeah, so anthropology, they're... They started as an attempt to explain how this whole thing worked, why Europe was so great and why the others were so terrible, what their thing was. Oh, because I accidentally put the answer for number two there, I was supposed to delete that second part. Crap. Yeah, I guess just draw a little arrow. I like that. That was Diana's idea. I just stole it from her. <laughs> well, darn it. <laughs> Hopefully that's the worst mistake I make today. Yeah, so what they would do is they would sit around. They called them armchair anthropologists. So just picture some dude like, you know, Lord Byron, Duke of whatever sitting in his giant cushy armchair and being like, oh, well, the people of New Guinea are worse than Europeans because they, you know, and don't have Shakespeare or something. Like, as if you took that dude out of his house and put him anywhere and he could survive. Like, see the guy on your screen. He has a number of skills that a Victorian European dude did not have. So you take the Victorian European dude and you stick him in the jungle and you're like, hey, make your own bow and arrow and just survive. And he would have died. <laughs> like, like, do you know what I mean? So that's the thing. So how did they try to justify colonization? Apparently, I already gave you this answer. They did it by saying that Europe was the best place in the world. And so they essentially deserved it. 
They deserved to take over everyone else because they were better. They were the pinnacle of civilization. So I'm going to give you two kind of examples or two, or two ways that they did this. So the first way they did this is they saw society as moving in kind of an evolutionary way from savages to civilization. And of course, they saw people like the indigenous Americans or the Pacific Islanders. They saw them as the savages. And they saw Europe as the people who inherited civilization. And they really twisted history to do it. So like, like Europe isn't descended from the Egyptians. They repainted the Egyptians. They made them super white. Like both literally and figuratively. Instead of kind of the honey black color that they actually were. Uh, we know exactly what they look like because we have them. That's the advantage of mummification. Like, oh, they look like that. Except, you know, not mummy. So, so we know what they look like. But it doesn't matter. The Europeans, they were like, oh, this is better. One dude, his name was Herbert Spencer. He was totally into it. He's like, survival of the fittest. And he applies Charles Darwin to societies. And he's like, the good ones survive. And the bad ones fail. You, oh yeah, kind of like the Hunger Games. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Probably not. I think. Courtney asked a good question, and it. I'm going to go off on a side tangent. Did you know that skin color is actually a complex trait and not a simple trait? We tend to view it as a simple trait, like you're white or you're black, but it, it doesn't work that way. It depends on how far away your ancestors lived from the equator, how dark your skin is. So my skin's a little darker because I have some indigenous blood in me. I can see, <laughs> you're pointing it out. I was going to say, I could see some of your ancestors are from the very, very north part of Europe. <laughs> yeah, case in point, super white people with red hair. <laughs> right, they can't tan. Some of my children inherited that side. You can tan? Oh, congratulations. So <laughs> oh, good. So you have the pale and you can tan. Right, that's it. So think about Egypt. It's not right on the equator, but it's not all the way up into like Scotland or something. So you can extrapolate the, the natural skin color that they had. So they use this. They thought that Europeans were better. And since we're talking about race, this actually works perfectly they did a lot of what they felt was scientific racial justification. They categorized people into these three different races. Please don't write them down. They are garbage. Hey, I hope you don't know these. I hope no one has ever gone through these with you. I hope you never see them again, unless you have another lesson on how social science was racist in the 1800s. Hey, like, it's, it's not a thing. As a matter of fact, 
when you know my first degree is in anthropology, right? And one of the classes, the hardest class I ever took was osteology. So osteology is the study of human bones. We were required, like our final exam, she gave us a chunk of a bone. We had to identify if it was human or animal. If it was human, we had to say which side it was on and um, whether it was, um, like which bone it was and identify any features on the bones. Like some of you have learned all the like nitty gritty little things. Uh, we, we learned the holes in the bones where the veins go in and out so that we could identify them from a small piece. By the way, you can identify a bone if you're doing an archeological dig versus a like piece of wood because the bone or a piece of rock, the bone will stick to your tongue and won't fall down. Yeah, that's what I thought too. That's what I thought too when I learned this the first time. <laughs> so, yeah, isn't that gross? You're like, this is a dead person. Huh? <laughs> Let me see. I'll see if this is, or is it a rock? I don't know. So, one of the things we learned is so a lot of us were going into archaeology and an archaeologist a professional archaeologist now one of the things that they'll have to do is say that we're building a new walmart because those are going up everywhere um down in salt lake city and you uncover a skeleton what do you do with it right like you don't you don't bury it under the walmart you actually give it to the people who are the closest relatives. In Utah, when we dig up a skeleton that's sitting there, not now under the Walmart, how do you know if it's a pioneer or an indigenous person? Uh, DNA testing, except you have to destroy part of the bone to do that. So what they usually do is they measure the leg bone, the femur, will tell you, because indigenous people were shorter. So that's the best way to tell. Other than that, though, anthropologists don't deal a lot with race anymore. The reason's really simple. There is more difference between two people that we call white people or two people we call black people than there is between one person who's a darker white person and one person who's a lighter does that make sense? So all these traits they spent all this time digging into turn out to not be really scientifically valid. But they would do things, so you see the calipers on the left side? They'd measure the size of people's heads. And if the white people's head was bigger, like a white person's head, a, a European's head tends to be bigger than someone who's from China, they'd be like, well, the European's head is bigger because they're smarter. But someone whose ancestors are from Africa, they tend to have a bigger head than someone whose ancestors are from Europe. So for them, they said, except if you're dealing with an African person, then they're dumber because their heads are bigger. Is 
In re I just think of your own family. Is the person with the biggest head the smartest? No. Are they the dumbest? Like, it, you can't really tell. Dinosaurs had huge heads and dumb brains. Like, it doesn't really work, but this is what they did. So the anthropologists, they justified their behavior. And they said, hey, this is the way it is because we're better. And they used all kinds of stuff that they thought was scientific that wasn't. You with me? Yeah, exactly. All of these are really complex traits. Intelligence is really complex. By the way, they give people things like IQ tests. If you don't know, IQ tests are really, really bound to how closely your life matches the people that wrote the IQ test. So like they used to give them this Navajos, for example. They'd give them a test and they'd be like, IQ tests start with really easy questions, like point to the red balloon. Well, what if you grew up on a reservation and you've never seen a balloon? That doesn't make you dumb. Again, if you take me and you dump me in this jungle here and you're like, survive, I'm going to be like, I need Wi-Fi. There's probably a YouTube video about this. And where's the nearest Walmart? Because <laughs> that's how I survive. Those are good skills. On the other hand, you dump that poor guy with the bow and arrow in our society, he's going to really struggle. But if our society's doing the judging, see what they're doing? Hey, so anthropology actually starts to change in the late 1800s. And it starts to change because the attitudes started to change. They started to see it like this. See Uncle Sam here over these other countries? Like lording it over them, acting like he's all that. It, they started to be like, wait a minute, do we really have the right to treat other people this way? Is this really valid? If we make up these rules and then we say they can't follow these rules, does that make any sense? And they start to see that it really doesn't. This isn't really a logical way of doing things. It's really not scientific. Hey, so let's get into folklore. By the way, when anthropology starts to change, This guy pops up. Oh, dude, I just forgot his name. He pops up. He founds the American Anthropological Association. He also finds the American Folklore Society. He's both. So the first real academic folklorist in the United States is an anthropologist. And one of his things is he's really into not being so judgmental of other people. So the early folklorists, they're kind of friendlier than the anthropologists. So this lady's sitting here, she's recording some uh, songs and some speech from an indigenous man. She's afraid they're going to be forgotten forever. But do you guys know the word paternalistic?
potter. The word potter goes back to like the old Germanic. It means father. Father. Your dad. So paternalistic means you're acting like you're the the authority figure and you're, you're kind of telling everyone else how to live their life. So that's what it is, really paternalistic. They really have this kind of attitude of look at us where you're the simple people. You can even think of it, I taught you the levels of folklore. Think about that, folk's like the lowest level. Why is folk the lowest level? Why isn't folk the highest level? I think folk ought to be the highest level. But no, it, that's left over from that old kind of look at us, we're the pinnacle of society. We're the highest. So the folk is the, the low. And of course, that's really kind of crap. Is pop music really better than folk music? Uh, so what do the folklorists do? They went around and they studied people that they felt were different. People they felt were like based in the past. In other words, they kind of studied the others still. So they'd see themselves as, oh, we're part of the mainstream society. We're part of the normal society. But these, like, people in Appalachian, the, they're, they're hillbillies. And they might have some cool songs and things, but look at those weird people. That's kind of, they didn't usually say it that way, but that's kind of the way they felt about it. Hey, look at these weirdos. It's cool. Let's preserve their weirdo culture for the future. And by the way, watch for this as you're doing your presentations. You, you don't want to get into that kind of thing yourself. It's not super friendly. One of the things that comes from this is the idea of the noble savage. Is anyone here familiar with that? A few that I taught it to. What does it mean? Not quite, but logical. So, you've seen Pocahontas, right? See what you're thinking. Okay, here's, you know that image of like an indigenous American where they're like the original environmentalists 
and they're super noble, and they're all kinds of, you know, elegant, maybe buff, you know, buff dudes and beautiful women, and they're full of regalia. You know, and they're like, well, like Pocahontas, with that whole song she sings, and, and she plays with the bear cubs. You know what happens if you really know the environment you play with bear cubs? Yeah, you, you don't play with bear No one who knows anything about bears plays with the bear cubs. Uh, but somehow she can because she's a native. And so they're like the original environmentalists, and their lifestyle was perfect. And our lifestyle is so bad because we're not close to nature. That's the noble savage. So they're some kind of special people that are tied to the earth and some kind of... The thing is, it's still a stereotype. It might be a positive stereotype, but it's still taking people and being like, you're not real people, you don't have a real culture. You're just... Well, a stereotype, yeah. Late 1800s, yeah, early 1900s. Again, there's a huge change in the 50s and 60s. And another one in the 1980s, but don't worry about that one. 80s, early 90s. Okay, so get this. This is what I want you to get. This whole sense of Look at us, we're the normals, and they're the exotics. We learned another word for that. Do you remember what it is? It's talking about ethnic groups, if that helps. Ethnocentrism. We are the normals, and everyone else is strange. When we look at other people, of course they're strange. They do weird things. I told my History 1700 class today, most popular kind of ice cream in history. Remember? Oyster. Oyster flavored. Mmm. Yeah, it's so gross. Right? So we, we see us and we see them. And we tend to do that. One of the problems that we have anytime we're dealing with the social sciences is that we tend to think of ourselves as the normal and them as the weird. We have to at least acknowledge that, that that's normal. So that when we look at other people, we aren't just being like, oh, look at those weirdies. Because if, if we judge everything based on look at how weird they are, then, well, then we end up with like we learned about today. Like Olaf, the anthropologist. <laughs> oh, sorry. Folklore has really had the idea that they had to save people's dying cultures. 
so their language is dying, so we have to record it. Oh, their songs are dying, so we have to record them. In reality, though, what happens when a culture gets taken over by another culture? We've seen it. We've done it. Some of what they do lives on. It, it, it never dies. It adapts and it evolves and it, it moves. My family puts up a Christmas tree and we have our traditional Swedish dessert because my ancestors came from Sweden. Christmas tree is German. I don't have any German ancestors. And my kids do because my wife's family is mostly German. Okay, good? Good. I'm going to give you the rest of the hour to work on two things. Oh, I didn't. I got interrupted while I was writing. <laughs>